It was about 20 years ago that I was speaking to a group of youth about God's uh, wise and compassionate love and presence. And I made the statement that God knows about the things that keep you awake at night. And one of the youngest of the students said, I don't have anything that keeps me awake at night. And almost as though it were scripted, all of the adults and most of the upperclassmen said in unison, well, that must be nice. <laughs> if you don't have anything, any thoughts or issues that are so difficult that they disturb your rest, I am glad for you. For the rest of us, Acts 27 will be especially applicable. For those who have an easier life right now, Acts 27 is something that will be applicable, that we might see it and receive it before we read it. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Lord, as we have worshiped you in song, we worship you now in study, delighting at the opportunity to read your word and having had it read that we can hear it proclaimed and have your voice speak to the depths of our soul and of our trials. Send your spirit to do exactly that, to bear witness to the reading and then to the preaching of your word. And so we pray for the preacher. He is not worthy, but by your grace he is able. And so it is through Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen. Acts 27 comes in three parts. Let me read all three together, the whole chapter as one. Listen to God's perfect word. When it was decided that we would sail for Italy, Paul and some other prisoners were handed over to a centurion named Julius, who belonged to the Imperial Regiment. We boarded a ship from Adramatium, about to sail for ports along the coast of the province of Asia, and we put out to sea. Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica, was with us. The next day we landed at Sidon, and Julius, in kindness to Paul, allowed him to go to his friends so they might provide for his needs. From there we put out to sea again and passed to the lee of Cyprus, because the winds were against us. When we had sailed across the open sea off the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we landed at Myra in Lycia. There the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing for Italy and put us on board. We made slow headway for many days and had difficulty arriving off Nidus. When the wind did not allow us to hold our course, we sailed to the Lee of Crete, opposite Salome. We moved along the coast with difficulty and came to a place called Fair Havens, near the town of Lycia. Much time had been lost and sailing had already become dangerous because by now it was after the fast. So Paul warned them, men, I can see that our voyage is going to be disastrous and bring great loss to ship and cargo and to our own lives also. But the centurion, instead of listening to what Paul said, followed the advice of the pilot and of the owner of the ship. Since the harbor was unsuitable to winter in, the majority decided that we should sail on hoping to reach Phoenix and winter there. This was a harbor in Crete facing both southwest and northwest. When a gentle south wind began to blow, they thought they had obtained what they wanted. So they weighed anchor and sailed along the shore of Crete. Before very long, a wind of hurricane force, called the Northeaster, swept down from the island. The ship was caught by the storm and could not head into the wind. So we gave way to it and were driven along. As we passed to the lee of a small island called Cauda, 
we were hardly able to make the lifeboat secure. When the men had hoisted it aboard, they passed ropes under the ship itself to hold it together. Fearing that they would run aground on the sandbars of Sirdas, they lowered the sea anchor and let the ship be driven along. We took such a violent battering from the storm that the next day they began to throw the cargo overboard. On the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. And when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and the storm continued raging, we finally gave up all hope of being saved. After the men had gone a long time without food, Paul stood up before them and said, Men, you should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete. Then you would have spared yourself this damage and loss. But now I urge you to keep up your courage, because not one of you will be lost, only the ship will be destroyed. Last night, an angel of the Lord, whose I am and whom I serve, stood beside me and said, Do not be afraid, Paul, you must stand trial before Caesar, and God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. Nevertheless, we must run aground on some island. On the 14th night, we were still being driven across the Adriatic Sea. When about midnight, the sailors sensed they were approaching land. They took soundings and found that the water was 120 feet deep. A short time later, they took soundings again and found it was 90 feet deep. Fearing that we would be dashed against the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for daylight. In an attempt to escape from the ship, the sailors let the lifeboat down into the sea, pretending they were going to lower some anchors from the bow. Then Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. So the soldiers cut the ropes that held the lifeboat and let it fall away. Just before dawn, Paul urged them all to eat. For the last 14 days, he said, you have been in constant suspense and have gone without food. You haven't eaten anything. Now I urge you to take some food. You need it to survive. Not one of you will lose a single hair from his head. And after he said this, he took some bread, gave thanks to God in front of them all, Then he broke it and began to eat. They were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. Altogether, there were 276 of us on board. When they had eaten as much as they wanted, they lightened the ship by throwing the grain into the sea. When daylight came, they did not recognize the land, but they saw a bay with a sandy beach where they decided to run the ship aground if they could. Cutting loose the anchors, they left them in the sea and at the same time untied the ropes that held the rudders. Then they hoisted the foresail to the wind and made for the beach, but the ship struck a sandbar and ran aground. The bow stuck fast and would not move, and the stern was broken to pieces by the pounding of the surf. The soldiers planned to kill the prisoners to prevent any of them from swimming away and escaping, but the centurion wanted to spare Paul's life and kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and get to land. The rest were to get there on planks or on pieces of the ship. And in this way, everyone reached land in safety. So Acts 27 takes us through these three parts of a storm. The navigation before the storm, courage in the storm, and then decisions after the storm. The navigation before the storm is boring, kind of like, Verses 1 through 12 are kind of boring. These people got into this boat and went to this place, and then they went to this place, and then they got on another boat and went to this place, and then another boat and went to this place. 
And it was slow going, kind of like the passage. (laughs) However, the trip details add to the historical accuracy of this account. It really happened. Thomas Walker said about Acts 27, there is no such detailed record of the working of an ancient ship in the whole of classic literature. And James Smith, a Scotsman who lived in various parts of the Mediterranean world, investigated its weather patterns and geography, and he concluded that the account in Acts 27 was the product of an eyewitness who was himself not a sailor. He said, no sailor would have written in a style so little like that of a sailor. No man, not a sailor, could have written a narrative of sea voyage so consistent in all its parts unless from actual observation. Indeed, Luke's words are accurate in terms of the route the ship took, ancient navigating skills, details of the ship's physical construction, and the way in which the sailors try to cope with the storm. Sure enough, Luke indicates that he was present by the use of the plural pronoun we throughout this passage. He was there. And so Luke uses incredible detail, including lots of names of people and places. In verse 1, he doesn't just say that Paul and some other prisoners were handed over to some centurion. But he even names the centurion, Julius, who belonged to the imperial regiment. Now there's no other notes anywhere about this person, Julius. Nothing else is known about him, but he was real. And this really happened. You can ask Paul, you can ask Luke, and you can ask Julius. You can also ask Aristarchus, who we have heard about before. He was the one that was seized along with Gaius in the riot of Ephesus and who was a traveling companion of Paul. And in the letters to the Colossian church and also to Philemon, Aristarchus is mentioned as sending greetings as one of Paul's fellow prisoners. All of which is to say that when people recount the storms of life, we sometimes exaggerate the story for dramatic effect. And that's not the case here. Luke gives specifics without exaggeration and plenty of eyewitnesses because it's dramatic all by itself. Because it's not about Paul, it's really about God. When a storm is coming, when some traumatic experience is coming, sometimes we have warning and sometimes we don't. Sometimes we can look back and see the warning signs, but sometimes we can't. But we can always be preparing for storms. The Coast Guard's motto is Semper Paratus, always ready. The Coast Guard is always ready, not by accident, but by purposeful preparation, massive amount of training in all kinds of situations so that they are always ready in any circumstance. The same is true for athletes. That's why post-race interviews are so ridiculous, right? The interview, how are you able to go so fast today? What was the secret to your success? I do lots of training is really the answer. They always are much nicer than that, but that's really the answer. I train a ton. Perhaps you're in the midst of a storm right now, so it's hard to think about navigation before the storm because you're in it, and we're going to get to that in a moment, but perhaps things are okay for you right now, but a storm is coming. Of course a storm is coming. So how are you training now that you might be ready when it comes? James Montgomery Boyce says this, Often when things are going well, we persuade ourselves that we are exempt from storms or that they will not affect us. But we are not, and they will. 
then the question will be, are you anchored to the rock? Do you trust the one who is able to pilot you through those tempestuous seas? Navigation before the storm is boring, but vital to our success. Meet with lots of couples for premarital counseling, and sometimes they admit that pre-counseling, premarital counseling seems boring. Our love will guide us through, all right? Anyone who has been married knows that the things that you learn in preparing for the wedding help you prepare for marriage. Are you learning to communicate, even about the wedding details, or do you just say, I just let her decide everything? Is that really the way you want to craft a marriage? I just let her decide everything. That's not going to work. Pre-trip planning seems boring. We'll just figure it out when we get there. And then you try to get there and realize you don't have a passport, right? There's preparation that needs to take place, planning. Most school subjects seem boring. Can I get an amen? (laughs) When am I going to use this in real life, we ask, right? But learning how to learn and learning to love to learn are just some of the things that are trying to happen along with the actual subjects themselves and some structural things with those subjects that we are going to need to know in real life. So the navigation before the storm is boring, but it's vital. That's where decisions are made. Communication is learned. Relationships and procedures are established. And a way of life is grooved so that we are ready when the storm comes. If you do not pray before the storm, how will you pray during the storm? Dear God, why is this happening? Please make it stop. will often be the limit to our prayers if we haven't really prepared. If we don't immerse ourselves in God's word before the storm, how will we utilize God's word during the storm? God, doesn't your word say you want me to be happy? (laughs) This storm isn't making me happy. I blame you, and you're not giving me any answers. Well, Acts 27 hints that something bad is coming in verse 9. That much time had been lost, sailing had already become dangerous because by now it was after the fast. And the fast is referring to Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, which takes place in late September or early October. This past year, it was September 30th, so just about a month ago. And mid-September was typically the time that sailors stopped sailing because after that, it became unsafe. The sail past mid-November was considered suicidal. And so it didn't take a prophetic vision for Paul to realize that pressing forward was unwise. They've sailed from Caesarea as far as Crete, which is only halfway to Italy. And it's been slow going, so it's still a long way to go. And so sometimes simple wisdom is all that's needed to avoid the storm or to be prepared for it. But we sail headfirst into it because we are headstrong. There are warning signs. Winds have already slowed them down. So how is God trying to navigate you right now before the storm comes? Well, the ship's pilot and owner want to go further. Verse 12 says, since the harbor of Fair Havens was unsuitable to winter in, the majority declared that we should sail on hoping to reach Phoenix and winter there. Of course, we hear that and think, yeah, Phoenix is a nice place to go for winter, right? Phoenix, Arizona, well, that's not what we're talking about, but Phoenix along Uh, further along Crete, was where they wanted to go. It's actually not that far. And it's a more major city with ports that are more prepared to, uh, to dock ships and to be there for the winter. And so you can see it makes sense to them to go just a little bit further. They're just gonna go along the coastline to try and get there. But here we go 
with the storm itself. Verse 13 tells us, when a gentle south wind began to blow, they thought they had obtained what they wanted, so they weighed anchor and sailed along the shore of Crete. Again, the thought was that the sailing would be simple. We're just going to sail along the coastline of Crete from Fairhaven to Phoenix. We'll, we'll see land the whole time. But what started out as a gentle south wind turned into a wind of hurricane force called the Northeaster that pushed them away from the coast of Crete out into the middle of the Adriatic Sea. Our family was once caught in a nor'easter when we were in colonial Williamsburg. I didn't know it could rain that hard. <laughs> the rain was coming down so hard that the drops were coming together so there were actual sheets of rain, the kind of sheets that you see come off of a, uh, off the roof or in a waterfall. It was falling from the sky as sheets of rain. We decided we were going to try and go over to Chincoteague, but we were not allowed to cross the bridge because the wind was so strong there were concerns that vehicles would be blown right off the bridge. And so we eventually went inland to a warm, dry, very sturdy hotel. And the thought of being in that kind of a storm out in the middle of the sea is terrifying. Most of us follow the reports of the recent hurricanes in Texas and Puerto Rico and Florida from our safe and secure homes. We watch the devastation of those storms. Modern technology can at least give us some warning that a storm like that is coming, but you still can't stop it. As the storm blows through, it is an incredibly helpless feeling to know that you cannot stop the storm. You cannot fight it. You just hold on for dear life and let it run its course. And so verse 15 is profound. The ship was caught by the storm and could not head into the wind, so we gave way to it and were driven along. Storms are powerful, and we are powerless against them. The best course of action is to give way and be driven along by it. And our hope is that the Lord is sovereign over storms. We know they are, he, that he is, because the Gospels even give the account of Jesus and the disciples when they were crossing the Sea of Galilee. And a furious squall came up and the waves break over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus is sleeping. And the disciples wake him in a panic and Jesus wakes up and rebuked the wind and said to the waves, quiet, be still. And the wind died down. It was completely calm. And what did the disciples say to each other? Who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? Yes, the wind and waves obey the Lord. God is sovereign over all storms, literal and figurative. Puritan pastor Archibald G. Brown wrote, what should we be if we had no trials to drive us to prayer? Sovereign storms drive us to prayer. Perhaps not immediately, but eventually. In our passage, the sailors do everything they can to keep the boat afloat in the midst of the storm. They passed ropes under the ship itself to hold it together. They lowered the sea anchor, let the ship be driven along. They began to throw cargo overboard and eventually threw the ship's tackle overboard. And then finally, when they had done everything they could think to do, they gave up all hope of being saved. But the apostle Paul speaks. After an I told you so, Paul says in verse 21, beginning there, but now I urge you to keep up your courage because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. Last night, an angel of 
of the Lord, the God whose I am and whom I serve, stood beside me and said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar. And God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. And so sovereign storms eventually drive us to prayer. They drive us to surrender to God. Now, how are we to have courage in the midst of sovereign storms? Paul shows us four responses. First, Paul knew God was with him. Paul knew God was with him. In this case, an angel of the Lord came to Paul, but Paul always knew that God was with him. And so when we are in the midst of a storm, we can know that God is with us. Storms are not God's judgment against you. It makes my blood boil when I hear those ridiculous TV evangelists say that Hurricane Harvey was God's judgment on America because of its acceptance of homosexuality. Shut up. In the midst of your storms, know that God is with you. And then second, Paul knew he belonged to God. Listen to what Paul says to his shipmates. Last night, an angel of the God whose I am. We belong to God. We belong to him as the bridegroom, the church as the bride of Christ. We belong to God as a child to a father. We belong to God as sheep to a shepherd. In the midst of your storms, know that you belong to God. Then third, Paul knew he served God. Last night, an angel of the God whose I am and whom I serve stood beside me. Paul is reassured that he's going to stand trial before Caesar. And if that's the case, then it's also assured that this storm is not going to take Paul's life. Now, you and I don't get special revelations of this nature. God doesn't reveal to us specific length of service or future places of service, but we do know that as long as God has work for us to do, that God is going to preserve us to do it. Do you know that you are serving the Lord? In your vocation, in your home, in your relationships, in your ministry to others, as long as the Lord has work for you to do, he will preserve you to do it. The Lord will take you into heaven when he no longer has work for you to do on earth. And so in the midst of your storms, know that you serve the Lord. And then a fourth response, Paul knew to trust God in all circumstances. Verse 25, Paul says, keep your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. Paul knows that all storms are sovereign storms. God is the God of all circumstances, even when we lose a job, even when we get cancer, even when we lose a loved one. God is God over all circumstances. In fact, Paul knows that he will survive this storm so that he can stand trial. How bizarre is that, right? Paul's not hoping to survive this storm so that he can then enjoy some more of life's pleasures. Paul is hoping to survive the storm so that he can stand trial before Caesar. He is hoping to survive this storm in order to face the next storm. And so in the midst of your storms, know that God is the God of all circumstances who is even preparing you for the next storm to come. And that takes us to the last section of our passage. There's the navigation before the storm, courage in the storm, and then the decisions after the storm. 14 days the storm lasted. Pause on that for a moment. 14 days. 
14 days of waiting to die. 14 days of waiting to drown in the middle of the sea. 14 days of around-the-clock, constant suspense. 14 days of not eating because you're so stressed and suspensed, tossed around by a ship thinking that today is surely going to be the last day of your life. But then the storm ends. And what's the first thing that Paul does? Encourage others. After telling his shipmates again that they will all survive by God's hand of deliverance, he took some bread, gave thanks to God in front of them all, then he broke it and began to eat. They were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. Christians are hopeful people who give encouragement. After the storm has passed, decide to be encouraged and to encourage others. After a storm has passed, even as you see it coming to an end, it's important to acknowledge what happened. It's healthy simply to say, that happened. That was real. Healing is a process, but since denial is the first step of grieving, overcoming denial with the acknowledgement of the reality of what happened is healing. And if others were involved in the storm, then it's really healthy to acknowledge together what happened and what you experienced together. During and after a storm, our first question is almost always, why? God, why did this happen? Why is the first question, but it is the last answer. The first answer is not to the question why, but to the question of what. God, what just happened? It's good to debrief it, to talk about it, to realize it was real, that it really happened. And then next, after the what, comes an asking how. God, how am I different? How can I be different because of what happened? Sanctification, maturity, growth are a result of the storm. New calling in life and serving are a result of the storm. You are different. Denial that it changed you is a lie. Sovereign storms in the hands of the sovereign God change us in a good redemptive way when we decide to surrender. I love the Puritan pastor Richard Sibbs and his incredibly wise book, The Bruised Reed. It's where he says, there is more mercy in Christ than sin in us. More mercy in Christ than sin in us. But in that book, he goes on to write, after conversion, we need bruising so that reeds may know themselves to be reeds and not oaks. Eventually answers to what and then how may bring an answer to why, or at least a surrender to the reality that why may have a bigger answer than we could possibly understand this side of eternity. But notice the decision-making that takes place in the final verses. Those that didn't listen to Paul are suddenly listening to Paul. The sailors decide to run the ship aground at a place that they did not recognize. No more are they looking for the best place to dock. They're just glad to be alive. The soldiers plan to kill the prisoners because if a prisoner escapes, then the soldier who is guarding him is killed in his place. But they're talked out of it by Julius the centurion, all just glad to be alive. And the prisoners don't try to escape. They're all just glad to be alive. And suddenly they are all helping each other to stay alive. 
Think about this, this group of people on the ship together, sailors and soldiers, prisoners and preachers, centurions, travelers. What a diverse group that is now all helping each other such that everyone reached land in safety. All 276. We get that, that number to tell us, again, the historical accuracy, a specific number. And we see that God's sovereignty comes down to every providential detail. Every single life was saved. Navigation. Before the storm is boring, but navigation is necessary. What sort of daily tedious training are you doing so that you can be ready when your next storm comes? Train yourself up in the gospel daily. And encourage in the storm is the outworking of this pre-storm navigation. In the storm, you can know that God is with you that you belong to God, that you serve God, that he is the God of all circumstances. And then the decisions after the storm are the outworking of that courage, which was the outworking of navigation. What just happened? God, how can I be different because of what happened? And how can I encourage others and help others to reach land in safety? Let's ask those questions and may the truth set us free. Amen.